Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at noflightbackvintage. Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the Party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. And Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Find our cute and sustainable fashion pics at the Silver Lake Flea and on Instagram at vino.vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that collects cat figurines, vintage cookbooks, and now artificial fruit. <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda. Well, as usual, we have a lot to cover today. Today's guest is Kate of Undone by Kate. Before the pandemic, Kate was a stylist, both for e-com, meaning styling the imagery that you see on websites and in digital marketing. And she was also a stylist for celebrities. Now she has her own business selling one-of-a-kind reworked vintage. We'll be talking about what a stylist does. You probably won't be surprised to hear that it's a lot more than just picking out clothes. And then we'll talk about her transition into entrepreneur. It's a great story, and I'm hoping it will inspire some of you to follow your dream, even if 2020 seems like the worst possible time to do it. Okay, well, you know what time it is. It's time to thank our new Patreon patrons. Woo! First is Caroline Bibb, who I'm pretty sure is our first patron from Maryland. I have very positive feelings about Maryland because I've had many, many fun school field trips to Inner Harbor in Baltimore, and a lot of you people from the East Coast might be familiar. Although... I did recently bore Dustin with a very long, boring story about how boring my field trip to Fort McHenry was, 
which is where Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Anyway, thank you for your support, Caroline. Also, Jessica of Vino Vintage is a new Pegasus sponsor. If you live in or around LA, you should visit her at the Silver Lake Flea. She has this really cute suitcase as a sign, and she sells really cute stuff. So check it out if you're in the area. Also, last week, Jessica gave me tons of information about how Buffalo Exchange works, and you're not going to want to miss this. I'll be sharing that in an upcoming episode in the next week or two. I'm still figuring stuff out, but thank you so much, Jessica. And I know everyone's going to love to hear all the inside inner workings of Buffalo Exchange. If you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll also share a link in the show notes. And as I always say, if you can't become a patron, that's totally fine too, because I'm just glad to have you here listening, learning, paying attention to me. <laughs> if no one listens to the podcast, then why do I make the podcast? It would be sort of like if a tree falls in the woods, can anyone hear it? Or it, am I getting that one right? Anyway, thank you for listening, whether you're a patron or not. I'm glad to have you as a fellow clothes horse. <laughs> okay. Next, we have a letter from Maggie, who you might recall is one half of Salt Hats. I edited it a little bit because I don't think you want to hear about our constant ongoing conversation about laundry. I mean, it's a big issue, okay? <laughs> but I will tell you that thanks to Maggie, I've been washing everything in cold water and I've been hanging out about 90, 95% of our clothing to dry. I mean, I'm lucky I live in the country. I have a huge wash line and the weather's been pretty decent for it. Basically, if I wake up and the sun is out and or it's kind of windy, I just like immediately jump out of bed and start doing laundry. And I also kind of look out over the field behind my house to see if the Amish farm, it's not exactly next door. It's pretty far off in the distance, but I can see their wash line. And if they have their laundry out for the day, then I go for it as well, because I know the women of that house are like sustainable laundry experts. Maggie does recommend using Blueland tablets for laundry, so check that out if you're looking to move to a more plastic-free lifestyle. Okay, so on to Maggie's letter. I meant to write a while ago to tell you how much I loved the Sewing Homac episode. It really resonated partly because I have that job where I'm able to sew from home and take care of my daughter while also making a decent living. It's the best. Until the pandemic forced the couple I work for to close their store, they had used it as a community gathering space to offer sewing lessons and also sold clothing from other nearby designers as well as vintage. They still sell from their home and have been having sidewalk sales through the summer. That's awesome and I hope Mary you're listening to this episode so you can hear about this. On the topic of kids clothing, I'd point out that there are lots of apps for selling and buying used kids clothes, though I've never used any. I've perused Kitizen, which I have heard about this one. Vintage stores, at least around here, tend to have a decent kids section. Personally, Katie and I have found that when our kids were little, we just bought the biggest socks in the toddler range. So at least they've been wearing the same socks for two plus years now. A small and somewhat ridiculous win, but seriously, sock drama was real when they were little and outgrowing them. Being able to do small alterations and mending is especially helpful with kids clothing, so you can always make bigger sizes work earlier. Creating a capsule wardrobe is really helpful so you don't end up with those annoying one-offs that only work in a single outfit. Amen. 
Uh, I'm starting a crusade against those. My daughter has been wearing a lot of the same clothes for two years now, and she's only three and a half. I have a niece who is now 14, but very tiny, and we have taken to altering adult clothes for her in her sewing lessons because her style does not fit the clothing sizes available to her secondhand. I love that. I hope that Mary heard that part too, because I feel like Mary would be down for helping 14-year-old girls make clothes. I love Maggie's idea of buying the larger socks because let me tell you, if you haven't had a small child in your life, there is so much sock drama when kids are that small. And Dylan, my daughter, was also constantly losing a shoe. Like, I would find myself backtracking for blocks trying to figure out where her sneaker was. One time, I was just so exhausted that I just, like, sat down on a bench crying over this lost shoe. I was like, now I'm going to have to buy another pair of shoes. How am I going to do that before payday? And a man came running across the street exclaiming, I think I have something you want. I was just so overjoyed to see that he was referring to a tiny van slip-on and not something perverted. Thanks so much for writing in, Maggie. And if the rest of you want to talk laundry, plastic-free tips, kids' clothes, whatever, you can reach me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. My long-term goal is to get enough patrons to afford the G Suite, you know, like the fancy Google email, which will allow me to have like an official Amanda at clotheshorsepodcast.com email address. And then, because what this happens a lot right now, my emails won't end up in everyone's spam folder. So that's one of my 2021 goals. Do you hear that sound? Why, it's the clothes horse hotline ringing off the hook, and it's a message from Elena. Hi, Amanda. This is Elena. Uh, I just finished your Sunday episode on part two on LuLaRoe, and I wanted to call because I love the part where you, talk, you were talking about the psychology of collecting and how all these collectors actually share really similar attributes. Um, I really like this because I follow another brand that's considered way more premium and, I don't know, tasteful than LuLaRoe, but basically has the same strategy of creating scarce prints and patterns, and people go nuts trying to find them years later. Um, anyway, so I had actually read a little bit about the psychology behind collecting because I got curious about it. Didn't get further than Wikipedia, but, I, you know, I read that collecting can – uh, provide a sense of security, which kind of reminds me of you with your plants or as a lady who just likes having her leggings around. Look at them. Um, or people can consider their collection a lifelong quest or all different kinds of motivations that um, get people collecting. So just wanted to say I thought it was interesting. I would listen to one hour with someone on why people collect stuff and what makes a certain item collectible uh, because I think those characteristics are probably shared across categories and hobbies. Um, but mostly just want to say hi and that I appreciate the podcast and I hope you're having a good week. Thanks. Bye. After I received Elena's message earlier this week, it sort of started the wheels turning in my brain and I've been thinking about both the psychology and the actual act of collecting for several days this week. Some of you may have seen my question on Instagram stories, which was, what are you collecting? And I got all kinds of fascinating answers. Hampers, dollhouses, wastebaskets, pottery, fiesta wear, books with cool 70s covers. I love that one. Rocks, ticket stubs, hats, art, plants, enamel pins, sweetheart bracelets, 
old rotary phones, animal figurines, Playboy magazines, old cameras, buttons, crystals, anything with a Mondrian pattern. I mean, I could go on and on, and all of the answers were so cool and so interesting. I'm going to try to figure out an aesthetically pleasing way to share all of them with you this week on Instagram. So I'm working through that, the graphic design element of it. It made me think a lot about why we collect things. And the reasons are just as numerous as the type of things we choose to collect. Humans are unique in that we collect objects that don't always have a utility attached to them. Meaning like, yeah, I guess you could use your stamp collection to mail things, but that's not why you're always on the hunt for a rare stamp, right? And by the way, I bring up stamp collecting because two of the characters in Judy Bloom's book, Blubber, collected stamps. And for some reason, that book has also been on my mind a lot lately. Anyway, humans began to accumulate possessions about 12,000 years ago when our ancestors finally stopped roaming and settled down in one place. And today, there are 300,000 items in the average American home. I mean, we have come a long way when it comes to accumulating stuff. And there are so many reasons we collect things. First, there are the reasons that psychologists speculate that we collect things. One explanation for collecting that is really sad is that unloved children learn to seek comfort in accumulating belongings which like I said, is sad. But then again, I can say without getting too dark here that I grew up just like so hungry for love and affection in a pretty abusive and neglectful environment. And I definitely have some collections going. So there could be something there. Another speculation is that collecting is motivated by existential anxieties. Our collection is an extension of our identity, and it lives on even after we do not. And while I don't know about that, I mean, I have to say, I've been to so many estate sales and auctions that are primarily the collections of people who have passed away. When I think about this motivation for collecting, I get even sadder because I know what happens to these collections after the person is gone. I do think, however, that we collect things because we see our collections as an extension of our identity. It's a key component of our persona as we see it. And to be fair, the things we surround ourselves with should, in the best case scenario, reflect our own taste and aesthetic, our values, our interests. It feels so good to create a space on your own terms that is filled with things chosen only by you and maybe not by chance. So I can understand that. Evolutionary theorists, people who think about evolution a lot, they think that collecting things was, and I guess is, a way <laughs> for men to attract mates by signaling their ability to accumulate things and therefore they will be perceived as having wealth and security and, of course, the ability to provide for a mate. And once again, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about this one. Like, I'm fairly certain that all of the listeners who responded on Instagram to my question, what do you collect, are women or femmes. So are we doing that to attract mates too? Or maybe, 
this is just something I thought of. Maybe we're doing it to attract friends because once again, we see our collections as part of our persona, as we see our persona, as we want our persona to appear. Some people collect things because they like the challenge of hunting things down. And that almost goes back to our most base instincts as hunters and gatherers, right? These people like the sense of accomplishment of waiting for hours in line outside Supreme or digging through eBay late at night. It's almost a sport in that regard, right? You're like on this quest, we also collect things because they mean something to us. So I don't know if you saw my stories this week where I sort of talked about some things about me because I'd heard from some listeners that they wanted to know more about me, Amanda, which is not my comfort zone generally, but I'm trying. <laughs> so one thing I mentioned on Instagram this week is that I had cancer as a small child and for those of you who will inevitably ask, because we're all amateur doctors now, thanks to WebMD and House, I had rhabdomyosarcoma, um, also known as RMS. And according to the Mayo Clinic, who personally has replaced WebMD as my favorite place to diagnose myself with terrifying diseases, RMS is a rare type of cancer that forms in soft tissues, and it primarily affects children. So I had cancer in a time when children with cancer basically lived in the hospital for long stretches of time. I had several rounds of chemotherapy and some other experimental treatments that left me with a huge scar on my foot. So I'm never able to wear bare sandals in public and another huge scar on my head that has prevented me from ever being able to pull my hair into one of those high tight buns that everyone was doing for a while. I'm okay with that. But there were some times I was jealous because then I was like, oh, I got to brush my hair and do all this other stuff, you know. Before any of you start feeling sorry for me, I, I want to say that one, I'm still alive to tell you about it. So it must have gone well. <laughs> and two, while I do have flashes of memory of being sick or in pain, what I remember most is how amazing all of the nurses and the doctors at that hospital were for me. Like, I was almost happy there in a weird way. My mom said that whenever she couldn't find me, I was inevitably at the nurse's station getting my nails painted or just sitting on a doctor's lap and talking. And I remember lots of craft projects, episodes of Sesame Street, and even decorating my room for Halloween. So I'm still really grateful to all of those healthcare providers who also just provided companionship and I don't know made a hard time a lot better for me. Like I have positive memories. I mean, that's amazing. And that's all because of them. After I went into remission, I still spent a lot of time in the hospital getting follow-up tests. You know, that's kind of how it goes, right? Not only to check for cancer, but also to monitor the after effects of chemotherapy, you know, like issues with my kidneys and immune system, which I had both of those issues. Because, you know, I'm going to tell you, I definitely had some weird after effects. Like I didn't lose my first baby tooth until I was in fourth grade. Some of my grown up teeth just literally never appeared. And I didn't go through puberty or even grow to my current height until I was in high school. 
Anyway, this is not a podcast about cancer. I was just trying to paint a picture for you. Like, you know, things were good. Things were bad. So obviously this is leading to something else, which is this. When kids are in a hospital a lot, right? You obviously have to bring them little gifts. It's just only good etiquette, right? (laughs) But you're not going to bring them, say, flowers and soap opera digest. In the 80s, when I was in the hospital, hospital gift shops had started carrying little Sanrio tchotchkes, a.k.a. Hello Kitty. And I loved all those little stickers and wallets and stationery that I would receive from aunts, uncles, friends of my grandma's. Like, I treasured those things so much. I would arrange them around me and just sort of bask in the glory of how happy seeing and owning these things made me feel. It was a really nice distraction from IVs and x-rays and just kind of being bored because back then they had barely any new television programming, even for children. It was like the same five episodes of Mr. Rogers that I have practically memorized. And during all of this, some sort of attachment to Hello Kitty was born. Like I would keep all of my Hello Kitty stuff in a special box in my room and I would just pull it out to look at it when things were bad at home or tough at school. Like I would literally sit in my closet with this tiny book light that my grandma had gotten for free somewhere. And I would just sit there with it clipped on to the box, admiring my collection in the dark. And that love of Hello Kitty and the sort of magical feelings that I get from Hello Kitty stuff continues to this day. I've already mentioned that, you know, and I'm not to toot my own horn, but I think when you're good at something, you should just say it. I'm a really amazing buyer. It turns out that it's all the things I'm good at rolled into one. Nonetheless, I still like constantly suffer from this imposter syndrome. And it's, you know, it's, it's from a lot of things, right? It's, it's from my background. It's because of my looks. It's because of my anxiety and having a few Hello Kitty things on my desk has always made me feel just a lot more calmer and productive and kind of like I'm creating my own safe space. And listen, I'm fully aware that Sanrio is selling a product that they are pushing consumerism with said product, that buying Hello Kitty stuff to make myself feel better is, you know, playing into consumerism. To be honest, it's still something I'm unpacking and trying to figure out. I guess I will say that I haven't bought anything Hello Kitty in a really long time. Being broke and unemployed is sort of forcing me onto a Sanrio-free diet. But I still go into my little office recording studio, which is where I am right now. And I look at my Hello Kitty stuff when I'm having a bad day. And I did that a lot more in the early part of the pandemic. Like, I'm in such a better place that I don't need that crutch. And I also don't have imposter syndrome in my own home. <laughs> I took all of these feelings, this magical power that Hello Kitty has for me. I took that one step further a few years ago and I actually got a Hello Kitty tattoo. And when Dustin and I went to Sanrio Puro Land, which is basically Hello Kitty Land in Tokyo a few years ago, I literally cried when I got my picture taken with Hello Kitty, which is a little embarrassing since, you know, I know it was just someone in a costume. But once again, our collections are wrapped up in so many emotions and experiences. I hesitate to call what we collect just stuff. Speaking of collections that attach to memories, 
I want to play another message. This one is from Dakota. Hi, my name is Dakota, and um, I collect fortune cookie fortunes that I find on the ground. Um, seems odd that I could collect something like that, um, and it is, but um, it started happening probably in 2011, and I think the first one that I found on the ground said, take a chance and you will win. And at the time, I was competing in a high school speech and debate tournament, and then me and my speech partner won the category and went on to perform and compete at the national tournament. Um, so I do believe in them, in their fortune. Um, and I have so many now, because that was a long time ago, like 10 years ago, that it started. And I'll find them in really weird places, like in a crack outside the airport doors when I get somewhere new or in a closet or just in literally anywhere all the time. And um, I've got hundreds. So I started a hashtag on my Instagram called I Found Fortune. And then a couple of years ago, I started adding hashtag Fortune Found Me because it really does feel like they find me. Um, and I just found some yesterday, three at work. So that's my collection. And hopefully someday I do some type of art project or something. There are so many. So what I like about Dakota's collection is that it's not about buying anything, unlike my thing with Sanrio. And it's not about accumulating wealth because while some of us collect because something just delights us, other people collect because they think it's a financial investment. And you know I'm right, right? So here's some examples. Comic books, uh, Wheaties boxes with athletes on them, Pokemon cards, NASCAR paraphernalia, which I never thought I would talk about on the show, but it's on my brain today because I went to an outdoor auction this morning and there was just like so much NASCAR stuff and people were losing their minds, you know? And of course, who could forget Beanie Babies? There was a family that spent more than $100,000 on Beanie Babies about 20 years ago. And there's a short film about them. Their justification was that the stuffed animals would increase in value and pay for the entire family's college education. Well, spoiler, <laughs> it didn't work out that way. And I won't go into too much depth about it because guess what? After all of, of your messages, your answers on Instagram, some conversations I've had, I've decided I'm going to work on an episode over the next few weeks about the entire industry that is based around collecting. So not collecting something sort of magical, free, and found like Dakota's fortunes. I'm talking things that are made and sold specifically under the guise of being collectible and therefore increasing in value over time. Dustin and I talked about this for hours last night, and we just came up with scam after scam of these like faux collectibles from the 80s and 90s. So like Beanie Babies, commemorative thimbles. Yes, that's a thing. Franklin Mint plates and all kinds of really nefarious stuff in the comic book industry. And 
I'm sure there's so much more. If you have a suggestion for a collecting scam of that era, call the Close Horse Hotline or email me. Or if you have a weird collection that comes from that time or have experience with it, I want to hear about it for this episode about collecting. But I do want to say something else about Beanie Babies, about the strange emotional weight of our collections. I'm going to read an entire and very short LA Times article from 1999. Ready? A divorced couple who couldn't agree on how to split up their Beanie Baby collection was ordered by a judge Friday to divide up the babies one by one in a courtroom. (laughs) Sorry. Maple the bear was the first to go. This isn't about toys. It's about control. Family court judge Gerald Hardcastle told the couple, because you folks can't solve it, it takes the services of a district court judge, a bailiff, and a court reporter. There was snickering among the five or six people in the gallery. I don't agree with the judge's decision to do this. It's ridiculous and embarrassing, Frances Mountain said moments before squatting on the courtroom floor alongside her ex-husband to choose first from a pile of stuffed toys. Francis and Harold Mountain divorced four months ago. According to the divorce decree, the parties were supposed to divide their Beanie Baby collection, estimated to be worth between $2,500 and $5,000. But they failed to split up the toys by themselves. After Harold Mountain filed a motion to get his share of the toys, the judge said he had had enough. So I told them to bring the Beanie Babies in, spread them out on the floor, and I'll have them pick one each until they're all gone. I can't comment on this story further, but I would say if you have your own stories about Beanie Babies, please, please, please reach out to me because Beanie Babies will be a major part of the collecting episode. They're sort of going to be our framework for telling the whole story about collecting. Okay. I have one more message from the hotline, and it's from Jenny of Late to the Party. Hey, Amanda, it's Jenny. I wanted to give you a quick call because I know you have an upcoming episode about collections coming up, and I've been thinking about that a little bit. And I just wanted to sort of share, like, food for thought a little bit um, and how, you know, as I'm thinking about collections and what drives people to collect and how we can't really talk about collections without discussing like obsession and obsessive behavior, right? Uh, And oftentimes like mental health issues. Um, Although of course not everyone who collects has any mental health issues, but there is an interesting connection there of sort of like people that do deal with like obsessive behavior, um, OCD, things like that, and and how those that often manifest in collections, right? And uh, as somebody who is a collector herself and, like, grew up in a house of, like, an obsessive collector, um, I can tell you it's sort of like a, an interesting slippery slope. On one hand, it's, like, a really productive place to put this kind of um, obsessive thinking and uh, to channel it into something, like, positive and productive and sometimes lucrative, which could be great. And on the other side, there's that whole, like, you know, things can, be, can take over and it becomes unhealthy and how to balance that in your life. But um, I just find it interesting that it's sort of like, to me, a lot of times collections end up being this, like, physical manifestation of obsession and almost like the art of obsession, which I think is kind of cool, too, uh, just as, like, a thought. Anyway, um, just wanted to throw that out there. I love the hard commit. I love people who, you know, 
pick a thing and collect it and love it and spend their time and, like, honor and cherish it. I think it's really cool. I'm super excited about the upcoming episode. Um, I can't wait. So we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. So Jenny brings up a really good point here. We're all familiar with hoarding. I mean, it's inspired multiple seasons of television. And apparently, although I haven't seen them, there are many episodes of Dr. Phil where he tries to treat people who suffer from the affliction of hoarding. I will say that there's a progression of innocent, average, run-of-the-mill collecting to obsessive collecting to straight-up hoarding. And it's really unclear where those lines exist. When I think of obsessive collecting, I think of a boy I knew from the elementary school gifted program. By high school, he had decided that his thing was music, and specifically, his thing was collecting CDs. There was a used CD store about a 30-minute drive away from where he lived, and he would go there every single day after school, except for the weekend, when he would be there all day, both days. And he bought CDs every single day, somehow. I don't know how, maybe he had an allowance. Of course, it also reached a point where he was spending so much time at the CD store that he was just like a permanent fixture there. And the owner was literally buying him sandwiches because he knew he was spending all of his money on CDs and had no money for food. He wasn't involved in any activities at school. He wasn't really doing his homework, even though he was like a really smart kid. And he was just also permanently broke because he spent all his money on CDs. And I heard from a girl who attempted to date him because I say attempted because he did not have the emotional space at that point to get into a relationship. She said that his room was essentially a mattress on the floor surrounded by floor to ceiling stacks of CDs. Basically, all of his other furniture had been gradually moved to the garage as his collection took over. And all of us collected CDs in one way or another at that point. Why wasn't it the focal point of our lives? But yet somehow, for some reasons that aren't visible to the naked eye, Collecting CDs had become his raison d'etre. So when did his collecting become obsessive and had it turned into hoarding? Freud, you know Freud, right? Well, he believed, and you can take this with a grain of salt, that hoarding stemmed from a loss of control, of trying to assert control over something. But that belief is still widely considered the primary motivation behind hoarding. Modern psychology has identified that hoarding is accompanied by general impulsiveness, dishonesty, and insecurity. It's closely related to compulsive buying disorder, which is something I've heard about a lot in connection to hoarding, and I'm sure you have too. One story that I hear time and time again, whether it's from people I know well, from acquaintances, from social media, is this, it's this almost like cliche story of an older woman filling rooms, like rooms, plural, 
in her house with unopened purchases from QVC or Home Shopping Network. It almost leads me to believe, correctly or not, that these shopping channels target people with a tendency toward hoarding and compulsive shopping, both by making it easier to secretly shop and also by somehow connecting with these customers in an almost addictive way. If you're a therapist or have a lot of insight into QVC and its connection to hoarding, please reach out to me because this is something that's fascinating to me. And of course, people hoard other things too, but the connection with home shopping is something that I just keep hearing. It's almost like this new form of hoarding. By the way, if you've been listening to me talk and you're concerned, you're fretting that you've crossed the line from collecting to hoarder, Here's the difference, according to Randy O. Frost, who is a professor of psychology at Smith College. When collecting is healthy, the display or storage of those things does not impede the use of active living areas of the home. Okay, okay, got it. When a collector expands acquisitions beyond well-defined collections and loses the ability to keep these possessions organized, it becomes a hoarding problem. So... Is your collecting taking over your whole life? Is it making it difficult for you to walk around your apartment or house? Uh, Are you tripping over things constantly and it's not because you're just throwing them on the ground or live with cats? Is your collection sort of dictating every aspect of your day-to-day life? I mean, that's, that's the difference, right? So with that definition, I think we could safely say that my CD collecting friend from earlier had become a hoarder, right? Because his collections were like swallowing up his living space, both literally because he no longer had a desk or a dresser in his bedroom and figuratively because he had no mental space for schoolwork or relationships. Much like the stories of Beanie Babies, this makes me just super sad because as you know, in 2020, CDs eventually became something that people literally just put in free boxes at the end of the driveway. They have little to no value. They reached a point where for the average person, they were just a burden, another thing that they had to move when they moved, right? I wonder where his collection is now. So, like I said, I want to do a whole episode or two about collecting. So please reach out to me with your own stories and feelings about collections. I'll be specifically focusing on the collectible products of the 80s and 90s, but I'm open to anything you have to say about collections. You can email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast, or and this is kind of my favorite thing now, is you can call the Clothes Horse Hotline. It's both fun and easy. It's 717-925-7417. And there is a cutoff around two, two and a half minutes. So if that happens and you're not done, just call back and I will seam the two messages together or the three messages or whatever you do. Actually, if you think it's going to be more than three messages, we should probably just talk on the phone and not record it, okay? All right. This is the most abrupt transition ever, but let's get into my conversation with Kate, which is the main event of this episode. 
today I'm welcoming to the show Kate. Kate reached out to me on Instagram about possibly being a guest and I love what she's been doing. So I was like, hey, let's talk about what you did and what you're doing now. So Kate, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this amazing podcast. Um, so yeah, my name's Kate. I am a wardrobe stylist and recently founder and creative director of my brand Undone by Kate. And um, it's, you know, like everyone, I've been affected by this pandemic and you know, tried to take my skills as being a wardrobe stylist and apply all of this industry knowledge into creating and founding a, an ethically and vintage sourced brand. So when you reached out to me and told me you had once been a stylist, I was like, oh my God, you have to come on the show because I have so many questions and I bet so does everybody who's listening. So why don't we start with how did you become a stylist? Like, do you go, do you go to school to become a stylist? Did you dream of it when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I went to school at Pace University in the city and I was the girl that had an internship every single semester <laughs> over the summer, like winter, everything. I loved interning and I just thought it was such a great way to get industry knowledge. And sometimes, you know, better experience and knowledge than what you get in the classroom. So mm -hmm. agreed 100%. Yeah. So I had, um, I follow, I had followed at the time this influencer, her name is Audrey Kate. And I saw she had put out an ad for a styling intern. And I was like, what? is a styling intern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, what is it? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I applied and I sent her a, a various amount of mood boards and ways that I would style a shoot. And, you know, if we were in uh, the cold uh, winter setting, how would you dress three models going, you know, for a brand shoot? And honestly, it was like such an in interesting interview process because I, I one had never even knew that wardrobe styling was a career path that you could take. I mean, this is a recurring theme on the show. Nobody ended up with a job that they knew existed before they had it. <laughs> myself included, myself included. <laughs> it's so true. Um, so yeah, so I had the interview with Audrey and we hit it off and I felt like such a good connection with her. And from there, she really opened my eyes into what is a wardrobe stylist. And, you know, I was just head first into the industry and helping her on brand shoots and doing pulls and sample trafficking returns, you know, like the nitty gritty side of being a wardrobe stylist that not many people know. It is not all glitz and glam? <laughs> well, that's a good question uh, that I have for you, which is, you know, I think a lot of people think that like as a stylist, you're just like picking out clothes and putting them on a person. But what's a real day in the life of being a stylist like? Like, what are you really doing? Because I know it's so much more than that. Yeah. You know, all the time when I, when people ask me, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a wardrobe stylist. They're like, oh, so like, what do you, you just like pick out some tops at the store and, <laughs> and send them. And I'm like, oh no, no. <laughs> um, you know, 
there is so much logistics to wardrobe styling. You are tracking shipments, sending shipments, you know, sample trafficking is um, basically it's the life cycle of a sample and where, where it comes in and where it goes out and, you know, how many days you keep it. And, and it's so much logistics around it. You know, you could be a FedEx or UPS employee at the point at this point, (laughs) because you are constantly relying on shipments to get to you or, you know, it's just a lot of back-end logistics. But the day in the life is basically, say you have um, a brand shoot coming up. So I really focus um, a lot on e-commerce and editorial. And I also had assisted a celebrity stylist. But for a day in the life of e-com, an e-com styling shoot, say you have a job and it's three models and you're doing your holiday campaign for a brand. Mm -hmm. It's my responsibility to, you know, say it's a shoe brand. It's my responsibility to tell a story through the clothing that sells the shoe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a challenge, right? Because you don't want the clothes to overshadow the shoes, but you also want to create this desire for those shoes and like an aspirational lifestyle with just the shoot with these three models. Like, it's no big deal. You just have all this responsibility on your shoulders. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds kind of minuscule, but it's, it's really, you know, when you're in these meetings and you're trying to figure out if straight leg jeans or boyfriend jeans are what we're targeting, you know, to the customer, like it really makes a difference. And so I think that wardrobe styling for these brands is so, so, so important to keep that brand image and, um, you know, I do love it. It's, it's really interesting to work with all these different brands and people and, you know, photographers, hairstylists, makeup artists, but, you know, it's a lot for one brand shoot. I think I'm prepping about two weeks. Oh my gosh. I'm sure. And imagine like the full-time stylists who are shooting the e-com imagery every single day, meaning like every sample of something that is going to be sold on the website must be shot on a model. There's the hair and makeup. You have to create an outfit around, is it just that shoe? Is it a pair of jeans? You have to make a whole outfit for that. You can't show the same outfit over and over again. You can't be like, here's the pants, here's the top. Here's the top. We'll just switch out the shoes for every shoe. Like, no, you can't do that. So it's a huge work driver. I mean, I, when I was a buyer once a week, my team and I, we would roll over to the studio with a whole rack of samples that needed to be shot for the next week. And sometimes it would be 50, 100 samples if it was a really busy time of year. And we'd have to walk through them with a stylist. Like, listen, all the denim needs to be shot with a high heel. And the cardigan needs to be shot with shorts. This was something that happened all the time at Nasty Gal. Every sweater had to be shot with like the shortest cutoffs ever, (laughs) for example, in order to sell. Like it's one of those things when you're a buyer, you start to see these trends in terms of how something can be shot and styled that will make it sell. So like we found that denim only sold with high heels, which is crazy because who's wearing denim with high heels? That sounds so bonkers to me, right? (laughs) And this idea of like a big cozy sweater over like the world's shortest shorts, that was another one. And so we would come to the table and give these sort of guidelines to the stylist. It's like a really important relationship to kind of communicate Mm -hmm. what seems to appeal to the customer based on the data 
And then the stylist has to like marry that with their creative vision. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. I mean, something I always like to do before I work with a brand is research who is their customer because Mm -hmm. in the at the end of the day you're styling the brand for the customer so it is creative but you also need to include the data of you know the brand and what their image is and who their customer is and what they want their image to look like and Wardrobe styling is a really important way to emphasize your brand's image. And it's like one of those things where there's no black and white answer to whether or not you've done done it correctly because you can't grade an outfit the way you might grade the financial performance of a product. You know, so mm-hmm. for me, those kinds of projects are always the hardest where your boss can just kind of come in and be like, mm, it could be better, but there's no like definitive score that tells you how much better it could be. I don't know. I, right. It's, it's hard when we get into these more like soft skills that are really about this, like finesse and nuance and talent and creativity, because also there's like a taste element there. And one person's amazing outfit is another person's nightmare. So it sounds like it would just be this easy job to pick out clothes all day. And it is so hard. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's a really, really hard job. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about, so you've, you've had both experiences. You have styled for e-commerce, meaning stuff that's sold online, and you've also styled for celebrities. What's the difference and what do you prefer? So uh, it's definitely two different worlds. And I think it's funny because in college, I was simply and and you know right out of school I was simply doing e-com and I was also doing editorial and then I was also shooting kind of like test shoots which is basically you collaborate with a team of creatives and make a shoot just for credit mm. um so that is definitely more I would say planned and um my experience in celebrity styling, I worked under um, an, an amazing celebrity stylist, and I learned so, so much about the differences in the industry. I mean, a celebrity stylist and an e stylist, you know, it's just really two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, working under this wardrobe uh, celebrity stylist, I really, really saw more of a side of like, Getting personally in touch with your client is so important because it's not just putting a pretty top on a model to sell something. You know, you're getting somebody dressed to walk down a red carpet or to walk to a press event and they want to feel confident. They want to feel good. You know, it's not just these quick samples that you can do with e-com and these little tricks like clamping a skirt to fit, you know. Or... Yeah, that's a really good call out too. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's like so many little ways you can kind of go through e-com and be like, okay, I'm going to clamp the skirt. I'm going to hem it. And we're going to, you know, we won't shoot the back of it from this angle because I have clamps all down it. But if you're working with a client, a celebrity, or, you know, anyone who's walking down a carpet or they're going to an appearance, they have to personally feel amazing in what they're wearing. They can't just 
put something on because it's the image that you have to feel good in it. And I think that's the main part about working, you know, in personal styling, celebrity styling with a client that's, you know, a person that wants to feel wardrobe is supposed to make you feel your best and your, Mm -hmm. your most confident self, you know, so Mm -hmm. that's our job when we're working, um, you know, more personally with a client. And it would seem that the sort of day-to-day life of those two different kinds of stylists is very different. Like the e-com stylist is probably a lot more consistent in terms of like scheduling and workload. That would just be my guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's also a lot of the times, you know, both of the women that I worked under were both e-com and celebrity stylists. So they're both superheroes in my eyes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so they, they have full book. And, and I think that's also so amazing that, you know, there are women and, and the industry that can flip the script from being a personal celebrity stylist to an e-com stylist to, you know, whatever it may be. I just, I think it's interesting that how the two worlds can collide and how different each job really is. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying when we were preparing for the interview that when you're a celebrity stylist, the hours are a lot different because <laughs> they're kind of like whenever the celebrity needs you, which makes sense because it's not like events and interviews and whatnot happen nine to five and that's it. You know, it's like this kind of stuff pops up all the time. Right. Right. And I was telling you about this ad that had kind of gone viral for a part-time assistant to a quote, large celebrity that was clearly some kind of influencer. And I had to read it because I feel like maybe some of the listeners have seen this, maybe some of them have not, but I feel like at the very least it's, it's something funny. (laughs) It's been kind of like an unfunny time in the world right now. So I really wanted to read this. So the headline is part-time job. And then the subheading is professional personal assistant to large celebrity. Oh boy. I know. So are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. It's it's hilarious. I'm going to try to read this without laughing. I tried practicing because it gets so silly and crazy. So a well-known celebrity slash influencer with 10 plus million followers is seeking a well-organized, available, diligent personal assistant to join her team. This is a part-time, in quotes, personal assistant position, but will eventually transition to full-time if properly qualified. The ideal candidate will be responsible for a large range of activities and projects, which will assist this organization's leadership. In this position, you should feel comfortable planning and managing calendar activities. All right, that seems legit. Mm -hmm. Being on property around eight hours a day. However, this is only a part-time job. (laughs) So (laughs) putting that out there. Cleaning cooking, communicating with producer, videographer, editor, manager, all stylists, cleaning services, other celebrities, and friends. You're connecting with everyone, apparently. Oh, my God. Researching and preparing for all pre-production, production, and post-production activities, handling all personal tasks for the YouTubers. This is a YouTuber. You must be able to remain calm, rational, and hardworking at all times. Oh my God. (laughs) You will have to answer your phone slash be on call almost 24 seven. Once again, this is a part-time job. This is where it really goes off the rails. You must keep all emotion slash private life matters completely away from this world. (laughs) 
you will deal with lots of incredibly private matters. You must be able to handle hundreds of small tasks at once. You must be able to be the bad guy, remove emotion, handle intense conversations, and bounce back instantly from any mistakes without emotion. This is like so <laughs> crazy. This is a part-time job, okay? You must you must remain sober yet social and inviting in high in very high profile environments. You cannot take photos, post to social media, or be slash seem driven by fame. Once the COVID-19 pandemic is over, you must be willing to travel anywhere at any time. Dot, dot, dot for this part-time job. Like, <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> I'm literally crying laughing right now. That can't be real. Oh it's my real. God. It was real. I want to say it was on Craigslist in LA. So, you know, there's been all this speculation all over the internet. Like, who is this person? Like, okay, it's someone who's clearly based in LA. It's someone who is on YouTube, has 10 million followers. Like, there's been a lot of, like, who who could it be? Uh, I swear I, I, that, that there was something about, like, a sub, a sub message or, like, a sub posting related to it that said you had to at all times be 30 minutes within the house. So like you couldn't live that far away. I don't know. It's, it's super crazy. Cause once again, this is like a part-time job. And when you were talking about being a celebrity stylist, it made me think of this, <laughs> this job posting, which is bonkers. Um, but of course, you know that there are people out there doing this job right now, every day, all over the world for someone who has all of these demands. And uh, it makes me grateful for all the office jobs I've had. Totally. <laughs> Respect to all the personal assistants out there. Like I, you know, I also worked with them really closely during my, you know, time working under celebrity stylists and personal assistants are like, you know, they make the world go round. I truly believe that like more power to them. Totally. <laughs> totally. This ad is a little bit crazy. I had a boyfriend whose sister, this is like convoluted. I had a boyfriend whose sister was a personal assistant to someone that had been on ER, that show from the nineties. Oh my God, and yeah. so she wasn't like super famous or anything anymore. Cause this was in the early aughts, but like his sister worked basically 24 hours a day. She had multiple phones. You know, she was like constantly juggling this woman's life. So I can't even imagine if your boss is also like a famous YouTuber in 2020. Like, what is that like? I have no idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I I truly don't know where, you know, where we're going with that. <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know either. So back to styling. Yeah. Okay. So. I was thinking of you the other day because I'm sure you've seen, you know, AOC was on the cover of Vanity Fair, this incredible yes. suit, and the Republicans were losing their shit because <laughs> why was she wearing a $14,000 suit and she totally schooled them and was like, any idiot knows you borrow these clothes, <laughs> you know, who's going to turn down yeah. an opportunity to borrow really amazing clothes and be shot in them? Of course, no one. And I was thinking of you when I read that because you and I were talking about how Styling is surprisingly sustainable, uh, primarily because, you know, people are using the same clothes over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably not something that a lot of people know. I mean, clearly everybody who went bonkers on Twitter about AOC did not know that like yeah. you don't go buy clothes 
for a shoot? I mean, I, I'm sure you do sometimes. So why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Like in what ways is styling pretty sustainable? Yeah. I'm honestly happy that AOC, you know, schooled everyone because so many people don't know. And it is, it's true. It's, you know, like the reality of styling. So there's two ways you can go about getting the clothing for a shoot. So one is sample trafficking. And that's basically reaching out to the PR of these brands, you know, sending them an email. This is the shoot. This is my client. Um, This is, you know, what I'm doing. I need pink tops and purple tops, you know, like you send out your criteria and, um, you know, it's kind of a back and forth between what they have at the, um, the studio or Mm -hmm. their office, you know, what samples they have, because keep in mind, they're accommodating people all around the world, all different requests. Um, so Sample trafficking really is, um, in some ways, sustainable because it's the same piece. You know, say it's a it's a blue blazer. You you want this blue blazer from Dolce, and that blue blazer is being used for many shoots all around the world, most likely, and many times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's getting a really pretty decent life cycle for a piece of clothing it's it's serving its purpose and it's um in some ways very sustainable because you are you know recycling clothing you're you're passing off from stylist to stylist and each stylist is making that blue blazer into their own image so it's not you know the same blue blazer you see everywhere it's it's um quite different so you can either go the sample trafficking route, which I could talk about for days because shout out to any styling intern listening to this. Like, you know, the struggles of just hauling in and out packages. Oh my God. I'm sure. I mean, when you're an assistant buyer, it's similar where it's just like, I remember when my first day as an assistant buyer and my boss told me that one of my jobs was to open the mail and she'd kind of given me this like ske- like schedule for the first week to follow as sort of a guideline. And she had me doing the mail for two hours. And I was like, how, how could the mail take two hours? And then the mail came and it wasn't, it wasn't like a couple envelopes. It was boxes upon boxes upon boxes. I had to open them all. I had to lay it all out with the information for her to look at. And then I'd have to box it all back up, send it out. I got really good at memorizing how long it would take UPS ground to deliver to different zones in the country. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. It's like so much work. And some cases like you're charging the sender's account to ship it back. And so you need to get all that information. You're filling out paperwork. You're on the UPS website constantly, which is literally the worst website ever. Mm-hmm. It's so horrible. <laughs> it is so much logistics. And I literally have my UPS um, delivery man on speed dial. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, so you're sending a lot of this stuff around, but isn't one of the issues that a lot of the stuff is small, like it's a smaller size? Yes. So, you know, that the great side about sample trafficking is your kind of giving one piece of clothing or multiple pieces of clothing, many life cycles, uh, and, you know, it's getting its full 
trip around the sun. But the unfortunate <laughs> reality of our industry is that samples are not generally inclusive for sizing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's unfortunate because in the end, clothing is a form of expression and it is meant to make you feel confident. It's a form of confidence. And if I'm going to a shoot and I'm bringing a size triple zero sample skirt for a model that she can't fit into, how is that going to empower women? And how is that going to empower us to get up and get dressed every day? You know what I mean? No, it's terrible. It's so interesting to me because I know that this is this is the nature of these samples. They're always really small, but often it's like the the brands are making that choice because they're not just like some spare cast offs that they have hanging around the office. Like they're actually ordering these samples to be made. Why are they always just doing them in the tiniest size? It's it's really a responsibility that they need to start taking. Totally, totally. So if you can't, because like, especially I'm sure when you're dealing with more like a like a celebrity, right? Not every celebrity is a size double zero. Uh, some people are bigger on the top than they are on the bottom and vice versa. And so not they're not even the same size in everything. What do you do if you can't get samples to dress them? So that's the other flip of what you can do to bring in clothing for this shoot or a client. Um, and it's, it's buying returns. And you basically go out to the store, you know, it's a lot of tracking what store you go to, exactly what you buy, saving the receipt, because after after your shoot, you have to return it all. And that is, it's sad to me because that is such a, a non-ethical way um, to go about it. it. But unfortunately, because samples are sometimes way too tiny, it's the route that a lot of people have to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now there is another um, kind of window, which is, it's called like store consignment. So um, I have some contacts since I've recently moved to Connecticut. Uh, I have some contacts here on Greenwich Ave, which is kind of like the similar Fifth Ave, but in Greenwich. Um, and some of the contacts there, I can go into the store and pull a blazer in a size four, six, eight, you know, and upwards from there. And then whatever we use, we, we use and whatever we don't, we return. But then again, it's, it's another form of um, buy and return. And it gives you a little bit more grace, period. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. it's still, you know, the main thing that's that stylists are using is sample trafficking. And if we can't get inclusive samples, then you know, what is the industry going to be? Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, it's one of the many things about the industry that is so like, to me, like old timey and incredibly out of touch that the industry continues to only make these samples in like these teeny tiny sizes. Like what world are they living in? (laughs) You know? Yeah. I I mean, and, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that the industry does that is like that and is of that nature where it's like, you're being really sizist and I can't tell if it's accidental because you just haven't changed your ways or 
is it intentional because you're sizest, you know, and you don't want to see someone larger in your clothes. Once again, also like, I think it's really important to call out here that this, the industry is not even particularly inclusive to people who are size six. Okay. Mm-hmm. Much less a 16 or a 26. Like it's so insane that like I've been in meetings where someone's like, it was sold out except for a size medium. So if any of you in here are a size medium, which I mean, none of you would be right. You could go buy it. And you're like, uh, I'm actually a size medium. So right. thanks for making me feel like a piece of shit, you know? Right. And why, yeah. Why are you making me feel bad about being a medium? That's a totally valid size. We're all different. Why? Yeah. Yeah. We're all different. And yet the industry has said, Hey, we're just going to put the stake in the ground that the only size we want to see photographed is a size double zero. Yeah. And you see it. I mean, I feel like, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit, like Danielle Bernstein, Mm. who is about a size six or an eight is like Photoshopping herself to a double zero every day. And it, it makes me so sad that something has gotten into her brain that makes her feel like that's the only way she can be her best self. And I think, you know, this industry sizeism all ties into that because the only samples that are going out are these tiny sizes. That's how our brains have trained ourselves to think that clothes look best. It's, it's so sad that it's the truth, you know, and like, we're looking at social media. I also just watched The Social Dilemma this weekend, so I am hyper aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all staring at our our Instagram and comparing ourselves to others. And it's really, it's so difficult. And for people who are in the position that have these millions of followers, I I truly think it's important to be so real and raw because you have these young girls who are kind of like shaping their thoughts about themselves right now. And I think it's a huge problem that we need to fix. Totally. I say this all the time, you know, like when I was a teenager, it was all about like, oh, you know, everybody in magazines and on television is so skinny. That's getting into your brain. It's bad for young people. But I will tell you that social media has affected my self-esteem around my body and my appearance more than any magazine, movie, or television show ever has because it's just so innocently teleporting itself into my brain every day. And the sort of conceit around social media is that these are normal people. These are just average people just living their lives and they're not, they're not average people. (laughs) So I feel like that's like why it's more insidious. So God, start shooting clothes on bigger people, please. Please (laughs) please do it. I can't take it anymore. If you are about to Photoshop yourself down to a little stick, please stop. I bet you look amazing just the way you are. It's true. I want us all to like go to this like government subsidized therapy that helps us work out all our body dysmorphia issues. Like we're all required to go. It's like mandatory training (laughs) for everyone in this country, all (laughs) genders. Okay. (laughs) So styling, obviously a key part of the fashion industry, Uh, the fashion industry has been like, this is an understatement, incredibly incredibly impacted by the pandemic. And when you and I were talking before, I was like, oh, I'm going to really try to find some statistics about 
how the pandemic has affected the industry in terms of layoffs, because you and I were talking about how so many people we know have lost their jobs. Well, I still cannot find any ironclad statistics about that. I feel like we all know that, you know, restaurant workers have lost their jobs. Uh, you know, a lot of people like entertainers, people who whose jobs predicated around them being around a lot of people. But the fashion industry has been hit so hard. I know so many people who have lost their jobs. And while I couldn't find any hard statistics about it, it would be like Gap laid off 20% of its workforce. Ralph Lauren laid off a thousand people. And it's just like over and over again, so many people who work in our industry don't have jobs and are living in a lot of uncertainty right now. How did the pandemic change your life? Because I know you're in Connecticut now. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, it like everyone, it changed my life in so many ways for the better and some for the worse. Um, I am now in Connecticut and oh boy. So <laughs> in March, you know, I I got laid off, unfortunately. It's just the hard reality. Many of us in fashion were the first on the chopping block. Mm -hmm. We're certainly not essential and, you know, mm -hmm. it's valid, but it it definitely took a toll on us. And I, you know, at the time thought that styling was my path. And that was the, you know, the career I wanted to be in for the rest of my life. And so, so here's how Undone was born. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly was not planned. And when I came to Connecticut to quarantine with my boyfriend, um, I got laid off like two days in and I spent the first day, you know, like eating ice cream and sulking and <laughs> crying and like moping. And then my, my boyfriend's mom texted me and she's like, you're gonna get really bored and you might get really sad. So I want you to take my sewing machine and I, I'll never forget. I went over to her house and she gave me the machine and just a huge box of all of these amazing fabrics. And she was like, just go home and, you know, play with it. Maybe make a blanket or make whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay. So I bring it back to my boyfriend's bedroom and I set it up. You know, when I first came here, I brought about one duffel bag worth of clothing because I was like, oh yeah, I'll be back to work in like a week. Like this will just blow over. <laughs> oh, silly, silly. We oh. had so many, we we're so delusional back then. So naive. <laughs> so naive. So I open up my, my little duffel of like shirts and I had just a bunch of band tees and like sweatpants. And I'll never forget. I looked at these two guns and roses tees that I had and I'm like, Ew, these are so ugly now. Like, I don't want to wear them, but I don't want to throw them away. So I I take a pair of scissors and I just start cutting them. And I, I actually cut this one in half. And I looked at the sewing machine. And I'm like, oh, my God, light bulb moment. <laughs> and I sewed these two shirts together. And, you know, I kind of looked at it and I'm like, this is kind of cool and I I send it to my friends and I'm like what do you think and they're like wow and so then I I put it on Instagram and I just took a risk and I was like you know what what do I have to lose let me just throw it up on the gram and see if people like it and like get their opinions 
And before I knew it, people were like, oh my God, how do I buy this? And who made this? And where do I get this? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like people really like this um and so immediately i'm like you know once i had even just 10 comments saying how do i get this i'm like you know i need to seize this moment and yeah and try to turn this into something so immediately i i sit down and i start you know scribbling all my thoughts and how i can potentially turn this into a business and that's exactly what I did. That's so exciting. I mean, this is not the first time I've heard this story. And it makes me feel so optimistic about what's coming next in the world, right? Yeah. So you said something to me, which I thought was really funny. because You said there's two types of people in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So there's the people who are like, I'm just going to Netflix and chill and be sad. And then there are people like you and myself who are like, now I've got all these big projects. Yeah. (laughs) So it's a pandemic. Things have been closing, reopening, et cetera. What are the biggest challenges you faced running a business during the pandemic? So, I mean, wow. Uh, I'll start off by just saying that my office is also my bedroom and it's my boyfriend's bedroom for that matter. Um, So it's, you know, in the beginning, it was super easy because, you know, I was really small scale and I was selling off Instagram stories. I would, I would, you know, plan out a drop day. I would make about 10 shirts and whoever DM me first would get it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as it grew into a website and, truly a brand, you know, I'm launching multiple collections and, and, um, every month on the site, it's, it's turning into a large scale brand and I'm still doing it out of the bedroom. So, you know, I'm staring at my, my room right now. One side is just a heap, a heaping mountain of flannels (laughs) and blazers. And it's just, it's so hard to, keep it all contained, you know, because, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this when I source all the vintage items, there's a minimum. And there's also that one of a kind element to it, you know, all my pieces are one of a kind. And if I see uh, a blazer that I think I can rework into something really beautiful, I'm not gonna miss out on the opportunity to bring it home with me. I, you know, right, right. I mean, because, like, you have one chance to bring it home, right? And then it's gone. <laughs> that that's that is one of the challenges. What's your process? Like, do you go out with something in mind, or do you just kind of react to what you find? So I definitely now like to plan things. In the beginning, I kind of was just going with what my customer would want or suggest. Sometimes, you know, my customers from from starting to sell on Instagram, um, I really, really gained a connection and got to know who my customer is. I mean, I was literally chatting with them every day over DM. And so if I got a customer who would message me and be like, hey, Kate, I would love to see, um, you know, two-tone flannels. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, sure. Like, let's do it. Um, so... At that moment, I would, you know, go into the city and go to my favorite bulk uh, thrift and vintage stores and kind of source based on 
the aesthetic of Undone, which is neutrals and, and, you know, blacks and whites and kind of like earthy tones, but still keeping it cool. So in the beginning, I would just go to these thrift stores, but now I have um, access to a warehouse, a vintage warehouse, and it is truly amazing to go and just pick through the barrels and get exactly what I want. So I definitely go in with a vision. I have my my collections planned out of what's going to launch this month, the next month, and you know the coming months. So I try to buy in order and buy, you know, still playing by the rules of my undone color scheme. I think it's really interesting that you you called out that you know you have such a relationship with your customer and you know exactly what they want because they can just reach out and tell you. And that is like, as a person who's worked as a buyer for so many larger companies, that is like the dream <laughs> to understand your customer that much instead of speculating based on reports and like watching people in the store or something. So I think that puts you in this really unique position to be able to build a business that has a loyal following. That's more than just a following. That's like a community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's actually really a great point because I really feel like it's a community and I just hit like a thousand followers. And I know in the large scheme of things, that's not a big deal, but that's a thousand people that are truly interacting with the brand and and messaging me and telling me telling me what they want and like that's something I love about undone like it's a very undone community like if you guys want to see something in the next collection dm me and I want to do it because why not I mean that's so cool because like I said a lot of these big retailers don't actually know what their customers want so they're sort of guessing and think about how much stuff they make that no one really wants that gets wasted Stuff that people are like, well, I couldn't find what I want, so I bought this. That also doesn't stick around for very long. And then you're left with these customers dreaming of these things they can't have because they don't exist. Like that, all of those misses are what lead to all this extra clothing going to the landfill. I mean, among other things, but it's like by having the smaller brand that communicates directly with your customer, it's the most sustainable model for selling clothing. Yeah, it's really true. Everybody's getting something that they love that is meaningful to them that they're going to wear until it disintegrates into dust, you know? Mm -hmm. I love that. So are you just like sewing 24 hours a day? (laughs) Pretty much. I'm a one-man show. I plan my my weeks out very strategically now because I learned that time management is so important, especially when you are wearing all of the hats. Um, So, you know, I spend like, about three days, three to four days a week sewing uh, from like seven to six. And of course I take breaks. It's yeah, it's a lot. Um, So I spend, you know, I I plan out my weeks of days I'll be sewing, days I'll be shooting, days I'll be, um, you know, perfecting the product. And those are usually the most tedious days, like the outlay of the button and where, you know, the seam is going to be. And those days I think are the most tedious, but Yes, I am pretty much sewing nonstop and I honestly love it. It's so relaxing to me. I mean, that sounds great. I have noticed a trend amongst uh, 
closed horse listeners that a lot of people like to listen to it while they're sewing. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. Cause I do it too. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm like, okay, we're finally settled in at our new house. And I'm like, where am I going to put my sewing machine? So I too can join this movement of sewing and listening to podcasts and like finding that moment of Zen sounds amazing to me. Oh my God. It's amazing. Also your so voice you- is like really relaxing to listen to <laughs> while you're sewing. <laughs> That's what I've heard. It's like, I, I obviously have had to listen to this voice my whole life and <laughs> the, I always hated the sound of it when I would hear it on a, like a voicemail or something. I'd be like, that's what I really sound like. Wow. I hate that. And the first time I sat down to edit the first episode of Clothes Horse, I was like, oh God, I'm like going to die. This is so painful to listen to myself talk for an hour, but it's like way more than that. Like it takes me six to eight hours to edit an episode. So I'm listening to myself talk over and over again. And about an hour into it, I was like, Hey, I think I'm starting to enjoy this. And then <laughs> now, you know, cause I have to like edit the episode, which is a lot of listening. And then I have to listen to the final mix sometimes multiple times to make sure everything came out. Okay. And so now I'm like, you know, I'm starting to, in a disturbing way, enjoy the sound of my own voice. I love that. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, my voice is relaxing. (laughs) It's super weird. I'm like, oh, is this how you turn into like a big ego? I'm not really sure. But anyway, (laughs) you are like a one woman show because you are sewing. I have seen you modeling stuff on the website. Yes. (laughs) You're shipping the stuff out. You are doing social media. How do you find a balance? I mean, do you have any hobbies right now or is this like all you do? This is like my my everything. So (laughs) I try (laughs) to get a workout in here and there, but it it doesn't really come. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I get it. I'm in the same boat with the podcast. It's like all I do, but I feel like the happiest I felt kind of ever. So... It's interesting. Like sometimes it's like hobbies are just something you do because you don't like your job. I think, I don't know. Yeah. Putting that out there for the listeners. (laughs) Totally agree. And then your, your hobby turns into your job and you're like, wait, this is fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. So do you pay yourself a livable wage? Um, question of the year. (laughs) (laughs) I, I definitely, so my boyfriend's in finance and he helps me kind of Oh, make, that's good. Yeah, that's he good. he helps me make sense of my finances and you know what's coming in and out. And in the beginning, I we made this you know calculator of how I'll price out each item, and I always, you know, I always make the main point that I don't. I'm not doing this to make a huge profit. I'm not doing this you know, for that. I'm doing this Mm -hmm. because it's something I love. It's something clearly other people are enjoying too, you know? Um, So when we made this like kind of calculator of how to price, that was a huge thing that I'm, I'm not upcharging like these huge brands. And also, Mm -hmm. well, I was like, I'll just pay myself like $1 an hour. And my boyfriend's like, what? No, you can't do it. I mean, I get it. It's really hard. That's why I ask everyone who comes on the show who has their own business, like, are you doing that? Because it's like when, well, before we started recording and I was like, it seems like one of the hardest things for most people is to talk about themselves. The second hardest thing is to pay themselves. It's so true. (laughs) It's so true. But it's It's like, you need to, you know, once you realize your worth and your, you know, this, 
like you and I, this is basically taking up all of our time. And Mm -hmm. this is our job now. So yeah, we need to put that worth into into the work, you know, we, we need to pay ourselves a living wage. And I think I definitely realized that a little bit too late, you know, midway into these sales, I was like, wait a second, I need to pay myself a living wage one so I can grow and put money back Mm -hmm. into this business because Mm -hmm. basically everything I pay myself, I put back into the business to grow it and expand it. But without budgeting that little piece, even if it's just minimum, you're paying yourself minimum wage, you need to budget that in because one, you won't grow. And two, you need, you know, to pay yourself self-worth. Like you don't work for free, even for yourself. Totally. Totally. If that's like something I can not underscore enough, it's that you must pay yourself. Your work has value. You need to have extra money to put back into the business. And you know, something we talk about a lot on the podcast is that like our, our sense of what price is, is so skewed by fast fashion that we're like, what $60 for that shirt or something. And you're like, dude, break it down. Like the person sewing it should actually be paid to like eat and live and have a happy life, you know? (laughs) And that includes you as the small business owner. And I think it's really, really hard. Like you, if you had someone helping you, you would not hesitate to pay them fairly. Right. Right. Yeah. For yourself, it's like so hard to make that happen. So what's your plan for someday when the pandemic is over, whatever that means, I don't think it's going to be like a light switch Mm -hmm. where we all run outside and we dance and we're like, we did it. It's over. (laughs) But what if, if let's say this time next year, we are moving back into a more normal time. What's your plan? What are you going to do? So, I mean, I found this new fire and love for creating and sewing and and kind of, you know, being the founder of a brand. And I want to keep it going. Like, I only want to go, you know, onward and upward from here. I want the brand to grow. I want to just, you know, like next month, spoiler alert, we're dropping blazers and leather jackets. And (laughs) like, we're just going, I mean, I say we, but I am going through the motions and I want to just keep creating this brand that, um, really speaks to my customer and, you know, is always, you know, it's very important to me that everything I, I sell is vintage and one of a kind life after the pandemic won't really look much different from what it is now. Hopefully I'll be able to move into another room or something. So I have more of like a, a different space for undone. But, you know, I just, I want to focus on this and I want to focus on kind of making my customer happy and seeing, you know, what they want for next collection. I mean, that makes me so happy to hear. Like, think of all these new business people that are being created by the pandemic. It's really it's amazing. True. It's so exciting. It's so exciting to me. So, okay, let's talk about the industry as it stands right now. Cause I know there's a lot of things wrong with it. What's the biggest problem that you have with it? <sighs> the biggest problem I think we can all agree on is uh, the issue of fast fashion and these mass brands that are really fooling us all. Yeah. I mean, to put it bluntly, they are kind of fooling us all. And I, something that I read a couple weeks ago that I can't stop telling people is that 20 companies 
20, they receive 97% of the money made off of selling clothing worldwide. That's insane. Isn't that insane? And I feel like they fool us into thinking they're like our friends or something. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, oh, we got to keep buying all this stuff. But they're not our friends. They're They're just big corporations. (laughs) How do you break the habit of fast fashion? Because we all kind of lead to like break up with it, detox ourselves. It's really hard. It is, first of all, so hard to... I mean, I am guilty of this when I have a bad day and I'm like, oh man, like I really wish I had like a cute top to wear out tonight, like going to Zara and picking it up. Like that is totally all guilty of it. But (laughs) once we, you know, realize and take a minute to be like, oh my God, I'm hurting my wallet. I'm hurting the earth, first of all. And yeah, I'm, I'm giving into these big corporations like breaking the habit of fast fashion is so important because I was thinking the other day, personal style is a part of who we are. It's a way we express ourselves. It's a way, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're feeling good and you want to, you want to strut your stuff and put on a red top and a cute pair of jeans. You know, that's personal expression and that's your own personal style. It's just, you know, exuding your confidence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And by falling for fast fashion, we really lose the element of making your style personal because we all look the same. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. And because there really aren't at the end of the day, that many companies out there making fast fashion, they're just making a shit ton of it. They're kind of forcing us to buy from these trends that they all, they're all selling the same trends. And it kind of affects your ability to be unique because everyone's selling crop tops, everyone's selling off the shoulder shirts or boyfriend cut jeans or whatever. And you're like, well, what if I'm really into like being mod or I want to, you know, like it's been nineties for the year for years now, (laughs) maybe you want to go for like a 1920s flapper style. Maybe your look is a blender of all these things. But if you went shopping, like I, I personally would, would be like, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go look on Zara. And I'd be like, there's nothing to buy. Everything's the same. Like I don't need another balloon sleeve blouse, you know, yeah. or whatever, whatever else was out there. And I actually had done some research a couple episodes ago about how the industry as a whole has been kind of holding hands to keep trends relevant only because they are more profitable for them. So like crop tops, for example, crop tops are cheaper to make. They use less fabric, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that was one that kept coming up, but like really short shorts, shorter skirts. When when maxi dresses are in, it's a less profitable time for retailers. Like it's so interesting to think about that, that even what you think of as your own choice towards your own personal style is actually being taken away from you, even when you don't realize it. This is like tinfoil hat area, I know, (laughs) but I actually have read all of this and like there's been studies around it. And I was like, wow, like all these things are working against us being our own selves in so many different ways. It's really true. I mean, think about breaking, think about the trendsetters who are not the the people wearing Zara and all of these things. They're wearing these cool small businesses that are, pretty much handmade or you know they are the trend setters like we mm-hmm. it's so important that we don't 
lose our personal style in fast fashion because I truly believe that when you get dressed in the morning, that is the first, you know, you set the tone that if you feel confident in your outfit, you're ready to go. But if you walk out the door and you look like every other, you know, person on the street, are you, do you really feel the same way you felt getting dressed in the morning, thinking that, you know, oh, this is my personal style. It's really not if we're all wearing the same trends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you start to think about it that way, it makes me, I mean, it makes me angry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cause like my favorite thing about clothing is expressing myself and it's like a creative challenge, you know, but knowing that we're all wearing the same stuff every day kind of takes the air out of it. You know, I think for me, buying intricately made pieces and this is totally not like a like a promo right now you know what I mean but like (laughs) but like when I created Undone I was like I have never seen something like this and if it is out there you know I must have missed it but I try to create these pieces that are unique and intricately made and I mean you know I would rather have a few unique cool pieces in my wardrobe that are genuine quality than a ton of Zara tops that I could wear, you know, a new outfit every day with. You know, if you Mm -hmm. have these cool, genuinely cool, like intricate pieces that are not these fast fashion trends, you can dress them up and you can dress them down any way you want. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to be that you have a closet full of all different clothes, you know, from H&M. You can have a couple pieces that you can style in different ways. It's true. And it's fun. And it's like, honestly, I think it's good for your brain to challenge yourself. Yeah. It's like a puzzle when you get dressed in the morning. Like, okay. How- <laughs> it is. It is. I, I I love that. You know, and some days it's better than others, but you're stretching yourself creatively and you're being yourself. Yeah. I love that. Is there anything else that you want to tell the listeners while you're here? I guess, you know, just to kind of go off what we we spoke about, like, don't lose your personal style in this huge vat of fast fashion trends and try to find these brands. You know, they are, they are out there, these small brands that really care about you. And I think as a consumer, I realized that like buying from these huge brands, they don't really care about me. And I want the really, you know, I'm making the relationship with my customers that I always wanted as a customer at Undone. And mm-hmm. I think it's just important to start thinking a little bit more about where we're getting our clothing from and the longevity of that piece. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If you want to be stylish, stop buying fast fashion. Please. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. It was so nice. It was so nice. Like this was such a lovely recording interview to record because there's all the sun coming through the window, even though it's like howling wind out there. And it just felt like, what a nice way to start my day. Oh my God, Amanda, I feel like I almost just like went to therapy, like fashion therapy right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally, I feel like that every time. <laughs> Who needs therapy? Just come on the pod. It's fine. <laughs> Thank you.
thank you so much, Kate, for being such a lovely guest. Seriously, when I was listening to the final edit of our interview, which, by the way, needed almost no editing because Kate is so well-spoken, I was like, wow, she's so articulate and thoughtful. Like, this is a future business leader right here. You can see more of Kate's brand, Undone by Kate, on Instagram at Undone by Kate and on her website, UndoneByKate.com. I'll share those links in the show notes too, so don't worry. Okay, now let's talk about the Close Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge. I want to specifically address numbers four and five. And yes, I'm totally doing this out of order, but guess what? I'm in charge around here. Number four is shop local and number five is shop small. And I cannot underscore the importance of these enough. The reality is that the founders of Amazon and Walmart have gotten $133 billion, yes, billion dollars richer during the pandemic, which is so disgusting when I think about how much poorer so many other people have become. It's infuriating. Now, once again, I know a lot of us, myself included, are not in a place to buy gifts this year. And as I've said, there's no shame in that at all. But if you are in a position to buy gifts, then listen up. This year, shopping with small businesses is more important than ever. More than 100,000 businesses that temporarily closed due to COVID restrictions are now closed permanently. Many are barely hanging on, just hoping to make it through all of this. It's our job to help them keep going because you know what? We need them. Small businesses fuel innovation, competition, fair pricing, and consistent good product. And it needs to be a diverse range of businesses owned and run by a diverse group of people. Small ethical businesses are our key to changing all the things that we hate about big business. Exploitation of workers, low quality, overproduction, all that waste, and you know what, just a total disregard for the planet. Basically, profits over planet and people. We don't want that, right? When a small business closes, competition reduces and quality and pricing get worse. And there's even more disregard for people and planet. It's kind of like a monopoly, basically. Amazon does not need your money this year. They're kind of having like the best year ever. But small businesses do. When you give your money to a small business, Your purchase has an immediate impact on a person's life. It allows them to follow their dreams and make a living. I mean, it's like magical. And when you shop from a local small business, the money goes right back out into your community. It may even create some jobs in your area, which we all need right now. Out here in Lancaster County, where I live, it seems like the only jobs, and trust me, I look every day are at the Amazon warehouse. And I'm I'm trying to hold off as long as possible in doing that because I know that Amazon is not keeping their workers safe from COVID. And I also know that local small businesses tend to be more engaged in the community than say Walmart or TJ Maxx. There are so many small businesses, and that's what's great about them, that I don't even know where to begin. So I'm gonna suggest this. Check out Gooder Gift Guide, which is launching on Black Friday. Gooder Gift Guide makes thoughtful giving easier. And 
It's a great alternative to corporate consumption. Their curated guide will offer collections of practical and design-forward gift ideas centering BIPOC, LGBTQI+, and women-owned independent brands. They've tapped an exciting array of contributors to share their recommendations for fashion, kids, witchcraft, and more. And I'm going to be curating a list of gifts for teens for Gooder, so you're going to want to keep an eye out for that. You can visit at Gooder Gift Guide on Instagram for gifts that are as meaningful to give as they are to receive. And I think that's going to lead you to other brands that you're going to love and start buying for yourself in the future. And once again... It's the way that your money can have the greatest impact in the world. And if you want more information about the Clothes Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge, or you want to share it with your friends and family, there's plenty of info on the Clothes Horse Instagram, at Clothes Horse Podcast. I think that this year, with all of its terribleness, it has a nugget of goodness in there. I see that with all of our friends who are starting to build their own businesses during the pandemic, kind of find their true purpose and passion because life sort of forced them to chase their dreams from our friend Danny at picnic to Selena Sanders and now Kate. Another good thing that can come out of this is a change in how we shop, consume, give gifts, all of our relationships with stuff. This new approach to how we spend our money and choose what we buy and care for what we own it can become a habit for us in 2021. I like the idea of 2020 setting us up to do better for ourselves, the people around us, and the planet. So let's just keep changing a little bit more every day. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. If you like what you're hearing, I know you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> It really does help us do some sort of algorithm magic that gets the pod in front of new people. And that's what this is all about. And don't forget to tell your friends and family to listen to it too, unless they're like totally not cool. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They can too. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who has shared our content, saved it, commented, liked it, all of that stuff on Instagram. I love when you share our content. I love when I see you recommending it to your whole social media friend group on the gram and just hearing from you, feedback, messages, encouragement, questions, all of that stuff is, it's the best thing every time it happens. And it's been happening a lot lately. So it's been, it's just been so gratifying and encouraging for me. By the way, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. If you ever want me to share a source for statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, please get in touch. I have enormous bookmarks folder. I'm not bragging. <laughs> it's a lot to scroll through sometimes. And I'm happy to share any of that with you. And maybe you're working on a paper for school and you just need to jump off. I've, I've got you. Okay. So don't hesitate to reach out. I'm not a journalist, but I'm really committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information because I know it gets really difficult to suss out what's real and what's not, especially on the internet. 
Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse or talk to me about something that we've been talking about here? Drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM me via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. If you have a question, just something you're curious about, holler at me because I love doing research. So I'm here looking for my next research odyssey. If you would like to meet other Close Horse listeners, then I suggest you join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And I'll put the link in our show notes, but I'm going to warn you, there's something really stupid about Facebook groups that makes it really hard to find or join them. So if you're having trouble getting in, uh, message me on Instagram or via email or even find me on Facebook, and I will add you to the group. And... Just want to remind you again of the Clothes Horse Hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. And I love when I get a message. I feel like it really adds a certain something to the show, right? So please keep calling. Every message is a great message. (laughs) And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. It's a podcast. (laughs) We talk about trends, taste, weird things that we think are funny. This week, we are talking about the trend of blanding and how that relates to the generic products of the 70s. And we have some other really incredible episodes coming up over the next couple of months that are both educational and funny. So I'll link to the department in our show notes. Check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.